I was just thinking about the legend surrounding the Buddha's enlightenment, where he was, as you know, I'm sure, they say sitting under a tree with the aspiration to become a completely realized being, to break out of ignorance, to understand life, to experience boundless compassion. This was his aspiration. And of course, it said that he fulfilled that. He realized that goal. As the legend goes on, it says that sitting there, now fully enlightened under the tree, the Buddha thought that he would not teach. He would not offer a path to others. Some interpretations say that he thought that the path would be too simple and no one would believe him. They would mock him as he went and taught uh, a moral life and a generous life and the path of concentration and the path of insight. But no matter what the interpretation, the legend does say that he thought he would, he would not express his understanding to others until a, a deva, a celestial being, appeared and asked the Buddha to please use his psychic vision to survey the world, hoping that what the Buddha saw as he looked at beings, the boundless beings, In life, he would be moved and therefore decide to teach. And it said that, of course, that's just what happened. These stories always end very happily. (laughs) The Buddha surveyed the world with his psychic vision. But what's interesting to me is that what he saw that so moved him that he very carefully and distinctly laid out a path was not even so much the extent and the the duration and the intensity and the variety of suffering that was going on everywhere, as it does in life. But instead, it was the ignorance. What he saw was that all beings everywhere want to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants that feeling of being at home in this body or mind, that feeling of being part of something greater, than our limited, kind of um, constrained sense of self that normally governs us. Everybody wants to be happy. And mostly, he didn't say this, but as I would say, (laughs) mostly we don't have a clue (laughs) as to where happiness is to be found. He said that, but in a far more eloquent, (laughs) you know, uh, ancient way. (laughs) But... We don't have a clue, usually. And so even though we want to be happy, we go around doing the very things. We make so many mistakes. We do the very things that can cause so much suffering for ourselves and suffering for others. But the bottom line is that all beings want to be happy. And this is something that I think is important to reflect upon because sometimes when we feel that, little nascent urge inside of us to be happy. 
we think we don't deserve it or we feel squeamish about it or somehow uneasy, like we don't have a right to be happy. But in fact, that urge toward happiness is not the problem. It's the ignorance that's the problem. When we can combine that urge toward happiness with wisdom instead of ignorance, when we really get a clue about where happiness is to be found, then that urge itself, it's one of the most beautiful things about us. Because it's not just us. It's that everybody has this right. Everybody deserves to be happy. And when combined with wisdom, that urge becomes like a homing instinct for freedom. We can cut through many, many obstacles as we, as we allow that to unfold, to unfurl. So everybody wants to be happy, and that's okay. It's amazing that such a simple kind of teaching, maybe the Buddha was right, you know, it is too simple. Such a simple teaching can be so challenging and so profound at the same time. I was just reading something in the news about some study that was done recently. Uh, I guess happiness is something that's being studied more um, by social scientists and probably uh, scientists, you know, neurologists and all kinds of people are now interested in happiness. And uh, so this study said something like, it seems to be that when people spend more time thinking about others and trying to help others than they do in accumulating wealth, that they're happier. And I thought, well, yeah, (laughs) you know, that could be. But we don't necessarily believe that, and we certainly don't necessarily live that out because of the very strong habits of mind that we have. It's like the Buddha said, the problem is not the urge toward happiness, it's the ignorance. So I wanted to start tonight by talking about the three root or main hindrances, you could say, or... Um, defilement is the classical translation, although that's a very unfortunate word because of the sense of judgment that uh, pervades it. Um, the word in Pali, the language of the original Buddhist text, is klesa. Sanskrit is klesha. That is normally translated as defilement. And what it more literally means, what it literally translates as, is torment of the mind. And this, I think, is something we can get behind, you know, when we are completely enveloped in a state like greed or hatred or fear. We're in torment. We know that. So the three root defilements or torments of the mind are the qualities of grasping or greed aversion, which covers anger and fear, which interestingly enough in the Buddhist psychology are exactly the same mind state, just in different forms. And then delusion or confusion. In some ways I see these states of of grasping, aversion, delusion, or sometimes it's called greed, hatred, delusion, as states of misplaced faith or misplaced trust. It's as though when we 
get lost in those states, we tend to place our faith in the wrong places, in the wrong things. It's that fundamental ignorance. When we're lost in grasping, as we all know, what we're counting on, what we're relying on, what we're placing our faith in is the ability to be in control, to keep things from changing, to keep people from changing, to be able to hold on successfully. And yet, of course, you know, when we reflect in hindsight, when have we ever been able to do that? It's not that grasping is, is bad or wrong or we should feel contempt for ourselves for having it, but it's so untruthful in some way. It's such a distortion of how things are so that it perpetuates a kind of myth and then we feel very disappointed. We feel very alone because we can't seem to design the world according to our, our wishes We want to keep an experience, an object, a person from ever changing. And then we'll feel safe, we think. I can remember when I was first practicing meditation in India, not way, way first, when everything was so painful um, and so terrible (laughs) and so challenging. But a little while later when some of my, a great deal actually, of my initial uh, difficulty had smoothed out for a time. And when I would sit, I would have these lovely floating sensations in my body and everything felt so nice and my mind was very quiet or if I did have thoughts, they were charitable thoughts (laughs) toward others or thoughts of great love and devotion And I would think, oh good, isn't it going to be wonderful living the entire rest of my life in just this state? And, you know, these were the days when I thought I'd never come back here to live, ever. Uh, But I'd come back to visit. And so I would imagine myself in maybe 10 years floating down the streets of New York City, (laughs) you know, kind of wearing my white sari with a beatific smile on my face and you know, but what would happen like 10 minutes later or 20 minutes later or half an hour later, my knee would start hurting or my back would start hurting or I'd get sleepy or I'd get agitated. And every time I'd think, I blew it. What did I do wrong to make that beautiful state go away? You know, did I breathe too hard? Did I not breathe hard enough? Or, But of course it didn't go away because... I chased it away or I'd, I'd done the wrong thing. It went away because everything changes all of the time. It's just the nature of life. And so grasping is the state that refuses to see that and puts us in defiance with that truth. So we're constantly trying to control what we can't control. It's not a very fruitful state in terms of our happiness. In anger or aversion, we place our hearts upon, our faith upon, the ability to separate from what is, to make it go away. It's another kind of control thing, that somehow we can 
declare what's happening as untrue, declare it as somehow apart from who we are and what's going on. And so we think if we can strike out against what's happening, we can cut off what's here, and if it doesn't go away, again, somehow it's our fault. And this, I think, is is the great cultural burden that we all face, where, as uh, you know, Mark quoted in earlier night, for Spence to be one of everything, he needs one of everything. We're taught that we should be happy all of the time, and everything should be pleasant, and somehow if you're afraid, if you're unhappy, if you're sick, even if you're dying, that something's gone terribly wrong. You know, what did you do? It is almost a sign of personal humiliation, and and the whole culture is built around that, so that there's, instead of a sense of community, there's a sense of isolation and uh, and being cut off and not willing to look at anyone else's suffering because it might somehow taint our little protected arena and not willing to express our own because we feel so ashamed and and so upset about its arising. And so we are deeply conditioned toward this kind of aversion, the sense that it's our fault. I can remember what seems now a million years ago when Ronald Reagan was running for president. And uh, it was uh, in, in a lar- such a large part of his campaign, there was such an emphasis on the family, you know, the, the perfect, beautiful, wondrous family in America where everything would be taken care of because everyone spoke to one another with such respect and they really listened and um, there was such a fabulous kind of communication and, you know, so the courts wouldn't have to deal with certain things and the legislature wouldn't have to deal with certain things. And I used to hear this expressed in the media so much and I used to think, who are they talking about, you know? And it's not that there isn't great beauty and joy in family life, because there certainly is, but so very perfect, you know, with no problem whatsoever, unlikely. So that is the, the image that is, is perpetrated. So, of course, you know, we feel all of that anger and, and all of that fear and distress when we realize we're not in control. Just as there is, is great pleasure, there is also pain. It happens. That everyone's life is a mixture of, of pleasure and pain, that that's how it is. And it's not that we need to be resigned to that or apathetic about that, but we need to understand the truth of things and what happens when anger becomes our habit as though we could then make all pain go away. And then there's delusion, which is the word in Pali that's usually translated as delusion is moha, and it means to be stupefied. It's that feeling 
I'm sure you've had it, or I imagine you've had it, where if you're driving down a road and you suddenly have the thought, is this Route 2 or is this 202? Did I make that turn already? I don't recognize anything. Where am I? No, that's kind of the feeling tone of the state of delusion. And here it's almost like if, you know, if in grasping where we're de- we've developed the habit of trying to hold on, thinking that we can, and in aversion we develop the habit of trying to push away, thinking that will allow us to be more in control. In delusion, we kind of go to sleep. We feel somehow often buffered or protected by that kind of haze where we don't have to notice very acutely what's going on. We don't have to feel anything. We can just kind of drift along and be deluded. So in all three of these instances, we really are just placing our faith. We're counting on something to bring us happiness that is just not going to do it. And so what we need to do is to understand them, not to condemn them and you know, not to hate ourselves for those qualities, but to understand their nature so that we can be free. We can see them for what they are. And it's almost like we have a moment of clear choice because of that wisdom because of that intelligence. So I want to talk a little bit more about delusion because it's my favorite of these states, and I'm actually very well known for it. There's <laughs> a quotation from a poem by Pablo Neruda. The poem is entitled, Flies Enter a Closed Mouth. And he says, When did smoke learn how to fly? When do roots talk with each other? How do stars get their order? Why is the scorpion venomous and the elephant benign? What are the tortoise's thoughts? To which point do the shadows withdraw? What is the song of the rain's repetitions? Where do birds go to die and why are leaves green? What we know comes to so little what we presume is so much. In some ways, delusion is a state of not realizing what it is that we actually do know, not realizing what it is that we don't know, and not knowing how to ask the right questions. In some ways, actually, delusion is almost like not having the energy to ask the questions. And I think about that poem and what a a spirit, that is, of being alive and looking at life, that sense of wonder, of caring, which is almost the opposite of the state of of delusion. Delusion is the failure to see things as they are. We don't actually notice, we don't feel connected to what's happening. And interestingly, according to the teachings, because of that disconnection of not really knowing, we feel uneasy. 
there's something in us that, that doesn't feel good when we're just kind of wrapped up in that bubble of delusion. But if we don't understand what's happening, then instead of breaking through the delusion, what we'll seek as an antidote is some kind of rigidity. So the example is used of being out in the wilderness in a storm and seeking shelter anywhere we can find it. And if we find something that we think will give us shelter, we hold on very tightly to it. And so this is said to be the birth of uh, fanaticism, is delusion, and what we do in order to counter it. If we feel deluded and confused and stupefied, and we're okay with that, we remain deluded. If we're not so at ease with that delusion, we find something to hold on to. Delusion has the characteristic of just not knowing. And if we look at grasping or we look at aversion carefully, we'll see the delusion in there. You know, it's, it's one of the most poignant things about grasping is that kind of hope. Well, it's never worked before, but maybe this time, you know. It is. It's so poignant, that kind of delusion. Or if I really express that anger, it's going to change the whole universe in some way that I will be able to direct from now on. It's very poignant, all of that delusion. In the teachings of the Buddha, they talk about these three characteristics of grasping, aversion, and delusion as actually becoming personality types. Whereas, you know, clearly we all have all three cooking quite a lot inside and guiding many of our actions. It's also true, they say, that sometimes one can have a very strong predominance of one or another of these factors. And so they talk about a greedy or grasping type. It doesn't mean you're a greedy person, but that your personality is configured in a certain way. They talk about the greedy type, the angry type, and the deluded type. And just for fun, I thought I'd read you some of... um, a little bit about these three types from this ancient text called the Visuddhimagga, or the Path of Purification, which was compiled a few hundred years after the time of the Buddha. It says, you can discern the type of person, If this again is if one of the three is, is very strong, stronger than the others, by the posture. When one of greedy temperament is walking in their usual manner, they walk carefully, put their foot down slowly, put it down evenly, lift it up evenly, and their step is springy. One of angry temperament walks as though they were digging with the points of their feet, put their foot down quickly, lift it up quickly, and their step is dragged along. One of deluded temperament walks with a perplexed gait, puts their foot down hesitantly, lifts it up hesitantly, 
and their step is pressed down suddenly. The stance of one of greedy temperament is confident and graceful. That of one of angry temperament is rigid. That of one of deluded temperament is muddled. When they sit or they lie down to go to sleep, one of greedy temperament spreads their bed unhurriedly, lies down slowly, composing their limbs, and they sleep in a confident manner. When woken, instead of getting up quickly, they give their answers slowly, as though doubtful. One of angry temperament spreads their bed hastily anyhow. With their body flung down, they sleep with a scowl. When woken, they get up quickly and answer as though annoyed. One of deluded temperament spreads their bed all awry and sleeps mostly face downward with their bodies sprawling. When woken, they get up slowly saying, huh? (laughs) It goes on, which I will go on in a minute. But basically, when greed is predominant in our minds or we have that particular personality configuration, we want everything to be nice. We want everything to be pleasant. We want pleasant things to last. There could be a beautiful aesthetic that we have. But this kind of person also... Uh, feels very uncomfortable looking at suffering, at loss, at change. So they say that this is the kind of person who will walk into a room and will notice everything they like. Like, oh, I like what that person's wearing and what fantastic paneling that is. And, you know, and (laughs) where did they find that? um, You know, isn't this lovely lighting? And and I say, uh, you know, that they're the kind of person in a meeting who some... When some problem is, is laid out, they'll say, it'll all work out. <laughs> and you might be thinking, how? <laughs> you know, how is it all going to want to work out? You know, but that's, that's what they want to see is the pleasant. So it's not greed in the sense of, of, you know, a greedy person, but that's how they perceive most readily. Whereas an angry person will walk into a room and notice what they don't like. You know, couldn't they have gotten rid of this carpet? Or, you know, you'd think, how old is that linoleum? You know, and, and, uh, you know, what are they wearing? What a ridiculous thing to wear. You know, don't they know better? You know, why didn't they bring a warmer shawl or a cooler shawl? You know, and like... And so this is a very interesting type of person, and we all tend to know someone like this. You know, where they're just... Their mind just lights upon what is disagreeable, what is wrong, what's not working... And it just goes there naturally. So this, of course, is the type of person who will be sitting in a meeting and some issue will come to the floor and their immediate response is, it's not going to work. And you might be sitting there thinking, why not? Why won't it work? But that's just how their, their minds go. And then the deluded type, they say, will walk into a room and most likely not notice anything until it's pointed out to them. (laughs) Somebody will say, oh, you know, look at that lovely bench. And they'll go, oh, yeah, that's a really nice bench. What do you know? You know, just kind of living in that cocoon of stupefaction, you know. And, And so each of these can be the way we move through the world, or some combination, some intricate combination of all three. And again, you know, it's not that these states are are bad or worthy of contempt, but 
always when we are in the grip of tunnel vision, when we are living mechanically, when we are habituated to a certain kind of reaction, our world becomes very small. And we feel the distortion of perception quite strongly from that. What we're trying to do in the practice of mindfulness is to see these tendencies clearly. Not the next day, you know, or the day after. When my favorite example these days, you know, in our, our time is when you're in the grip of a very strong anger and you don't even know it. So that you dash off that email and you press send, you know, and then in an hour or two hours or the next day you go, whoops, <laughs> I guess I was really angry, you know, and maybe I wasn't seeing everything so clearly. And then those of you who are in AOL as a server know that um, it has this feature that if the recipient of your email is also on AOL, you can do something called unsend. You can race to the computer and pray they haven't read your email. And, and if they haven't, you can unsend it. I don't know where it goes, but something <laughs> happens to it so that it plucks it right out of that computer. And it, you know, and it's gone. But of course, they have usually, you know, read the email already. And you know, so to know what we're feeling as we're feeling it is no small thing. So, with mindfulness, we are to begin with trying to see the reactions that are coming up in our minds as they're happening, to see them clearly, and to have a choice you know, based on love, based on wisdom, based on compassion. So that our world actually gets bigger. It's not that we are limited in how we will respond or how we will react, but it's conscious. It's not driven by by just these habits of the mind. I'll go on a little bit, just in case you're trying to decide your type. (laughs) Also, in action, in sweeping, etc. Now, this, of course, is you know was written in uh, you know like two thousand three hundred years ago or something like that, and and, uh, is talking a lot about monastic society. So, sweeping is a very big thing. You sweep your path, you sweep your room and stuff. One of greedy temperament grasps the broom well, and they sweep cleanly and eagerly, without hurrying or scattering the sand, as if they were strewing flowers. One of angry temperament grasps the broom tightly, and they sweep uncleanly and unevenly with a harsh noise, hurriedly throwing up the sand in each side. One of deluded temperament grasps the broom loosely, and they sweep not cleanly or evenly, mixing the sand up and turning it over. When one of greedy temperament sees even a slightly pleasing visible object, they look long as if surprised. They seize on trivial virtues, discount genuine faults, and when departing, they do so with regret, as if unwilling to leave. When one of angry temperament sees even a slightly unpleasing visible object, they avoid looking long as if they were tired. They pick out trivial faults, discount genuine virtues, And when departing, they do so without regret, as if anxious to leave. 
When one of deluded temperament sees any sort of visible object, they copy what others do. If they hear others criticizing, they criticize. If they hear others praising, they praise. But actually, they feel equanimity in themselves, the equanimity of unknowing. (laughs) And because of delusion, whether we would categorize ourselves as that particular kind of personality type or not, we all go through some strong times of delusion. Because of that quality, we feel very unsettled. We feel like we don't belong in our bodies, we don't belong in our own minds, in our own experience. It's like we're inhabiting something strange. And there's a great deal of, of perplexity as we go through life. Often in delusion, we don't experience things in an integrated way, but we experience them rather as this kind of puzzling array of pieces, and we can't quite tell how they all fit together. We don't get how things are connected or interrelated. If we get lost in delusion, we just disconnect. We'd rather be disconnected, we'd rather be numb in a way than actually feel. Sometimes not only do we not want to feel suffering, but we also don't want to feel joy. We don't want to feel happiness. We just want to be half asleep. Because of delusion, we miss a lot. We can be lost in a cloud. In my early practice, when I was first practicing in this particular school, where mental noting is emphasized so much, I received the instruction to try to make a mental note of whatever my predominant experience was all day long. So in the sitting, that might be the breath or physical sensation. You know, in the walking, it would likely be physical sensation. And the rest of the day, it could be anything. So I noticed, I was living in this compound in India, and I noticed that I was just kind of walking around, and the single most common mental note that I was making was that of waiting. I was just kind of going around saying mentally, waiting, 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 waiting. And then I finally said to myself, what are you waiting for? And I realized that I was waiting for something exciting enough to happen or important enough to happen or spiritual enough to happen so that I could note it. (laughs) And I realized I was living as though I were a tape recorder with the pause button on. I was just waiting for something better to come along. And like most things we see in meditation practice, It's not something that just arrives when we're sitting in a funny posture or doing a a kind of stylized technique. It's a habit of mind we've been carrying for some time, and there it was. I was sure enough waiting. That's delusion. We live as though the pause button is on, And we don't perceive. We don't perceive directly. We don't perceive for ourselves. We don't have a sense of contact. It's all delusion. I was telling some of the groups I was working with today about, as many of you have heard us talk about, when my Burmese teacher, 
His name is Sayadaw Upandita. Sayadaw is means teacher, and U, capital U, is like a, an honorific. It's like mister in a respectful way in Burmese language. So Sayadaw Upandita came to Barry in 1984 to teach a three-month retreat that I was going to be sitting under his guidance. I had never met him, and several of our colleagues had met him in Burma and said that he was a, a remarkable teacher, and so we should bring him. So he arrived here one day, and we began sitting for three months the next, never having met him. And it turned out that he was an extremely intense, demanding, fierce teacher. He also had a a kind of teaching style where we were seeing him six days a week for interviews, where we would describe our meditation practice. And he had this kind of teaching style where he would repeat the same thing day after day after day after day until something shifted inside of you when he would go on to something else. And he had asked us to describe one sitting and one walking from the previous 24 hours when we'd see him. So most of us, to facilitate that, would take just a few notes at the end of a sitting and at the end of a walking, very simple, like this is what the breath felt like and I was sleepy or restless or whatever had actually happened. So I would go in to see him holding my little piece of paper with my notes on it. And before I could read the description of my sitting and my walking, he would look at me and he would say, tell me everything you noticed when you washed your face, which was nothing. And that was it. That was my interview. So I got up and I left and I'd sit as mindfully as I could and I'd walk as mindfully as I could and then I'd wash my face really mindfully. I'd feel my hands in the water and I'd feel the water on my face and I'd come in to see him the next day and he'd say to me, tell me everything you noticed when you drank a cup of tea, which was nothing. And so I'd leave, and I'd sit as mindfully as I could, and I'd walk as mindfully as I could, and I'd wash my face as mindfully as I could, and when I drank that cup of tea, I felt the warmth of the teacup, and I took the time to smell the tea, and then I tasted the tea, and I felt the warmth going down my throat. And I'd go in the next day, and he'd say, tell me everything you noticed when you opened the door, which was nothing. And believe me, on the way out, I felt the coldness and the hardness of the doorknob, and then I felt the movement, and I quickly saw where things were going. And in my mind, I called it the torment of continuity. But unlike my projections about it, which was that it was going to be horrible, it actually proved to be quite beautiful, in fact, because it cut through so many tendencies of disconnection. For one thing, that feeling we can harbor that the real thing happens in the meditation hall and everything else is just filler. Um, It went away. You know, if I was sitting in the dining room and having a cup of tea and I got lost in a tremendous fantasy and then I realized that you know, that tendency we might have to kind of throw our cup in the dishwasher and run into the meditation hall to regroup, you know, and and be mindful again. I couldn't do that. 
because everything was as important as everything else. And he might well ask about that cup of tea and not about anything that happened in the hall. So everything became an act of meditation. It was the process of trying to connect to absolutely everything. And I didn't have time to judge so much. Was that good? Was that bad? How was that? You know, should I talk about that? Because the next thing was already happening. He was more likely to talk about the experience of folding my shawl and getting up from a sitting than anything that happened in the sitting. It proved to be just this tremendous process of connection. It took me a while to appreciate that, but it's very true. We connect to all of the activities that we do. What an amazing way to live, actually, knowing where we are, being there, not just kind of leaning forward for the next activity. In um, Buddhist teaching, that kind of leaning forward is called becoming, where we're constantly missing what is because we're kind of lurching to see what might be coming next. And that is in contrast to a state of being, of just actually settling back into our being to have that, that kind of presence. And we connect to our experience no matter what it feels like. There was a study done not too long ago. It was a while ago, but not, you know, not like a decade ago. It was maybe five, six years ago, where people were wired up to all those things that measure everything. And uh, I don't know exactly what happened next. I don't know if they were shown images or they were told stories or something happened to elicit a kind of emotional reaction. And um, it said that a large percentage of the people, even though their blood pressure was going up and they were sweating, and by all discernible objective measurements, something was going on, a large percentage of the people said they didn't feel anything, that they were that cut off from what was happening. And interestingly enough, um, that study was part of a larger study about empathy. Because in order to feel someone else's pain, we have to be able to feel our own. And in order not to objectify somebody or be able to hurt them or, or not care about them, we have to be able to recognize that our actions, the consequences of our actions may be painful to them. And that is considered, of course, the best kind of morality, which isn't a morality at all in the sense of external standards, but it's being so in touch with what it would feel like and knowing how it would feel for us. And so we don't want to extend that with somebody else. You know, we know what it feels like when someone tells us a lie, and we don't want to have anyone else feel that because of something that we do or say. And so being able to open, to connect, to not be lost in delusion, to really feel what is actually going on, even when it feels so unpleasant, is very powerful, is very important. It is the beginning of having compassion for ourselves, having empathy for others. We need to be able to pay attention 
the Thai meditation master Ajahn Chah talked about what it feels like to be lost in delusion. He said, when we have no real home, we are like aimless travelers out on the road, going this way for a while, then that way. Until we return to our real home, we feel ill at ease whatever we are doing. I have a classic story about delusion, um, which I think exemplifies that state very well. It was some years ago when I was teaching a retreat here, and I went to Cambridge one night to give a talk. I came back and parked my car, and I just glanced at the uh, gas meter, and I realized I didn't have a whole lot of gas. And I just turned off the car and went home, went to bed. I got up the next morning and walked here from next door and kind of noticed that my car wasn't there. So I had this really sort of vague, deluded thought, and deluded people really don't do well early in the morning. And I just had the thought, that's funny, my car's gone. And, <laughs> and I just had this kind of weird sort of assumption. I thought, well, maybe somebody realized it didn't have much gas, and I took it to put gas in it. Just like, you know, so I, I came in into the staff dining room, and I saw somebody who worked here on staff, and, and if anybody were to have taken the car, in fact, it would have been him to put gas in it. So I looked at him, and I said, did you take my car? And he said, no, I didn't take your car. And I said, you sure you didn't take my car? And he said, no, I didn't take the car. And I said, well, it's gone. And then he said, are you sure it's gone? And that was the killer moment. And I thought, I think it's gone. It seemed to be gone. I mean, I walked right by where I parked it, and I think it was gone, you know? Like, the car is really kind of big. And then he said, I'm going to go check. And I said, no, no, it's gone. I think it's gone. And then another uh, teacher walked in about to begin interviews. And and I said, did you take my car? And she said, no, I didn't take your car. And I said, well, it's gone. And she said, well, you know, you probably lent it to somebody and you forgot. And I thought, I wonder who I lent it to and I forgot. Who could I have lent it to? And I went upstairs and I did interviews and um, every once in a while I would have a wandering thought, I wonder who I lent my car to. I can't, you know, I can't remember. Who did I give my car to? And So then I came down at lunch and uh, I saw another teacher and I said, did you take my car? <laughs> and she said no. And then Joseph walked by and, and he said, oh, I know what happened to your car. And I said, what happened to my car? And, and he said it was some whole story about somebody had called him and like had an emergency and needed to borrow a car and it was like six in the morning and he knew I was asleep and uh, you know and and he just told them they could take my car and uh, had neglected to inform me <laughs> that they were going to um, be gone with it but it was a, a complete example of delusion. Was it gone? I think it was gone. So you see how, because of delusion, not only do we miss a lot, but we lose confidence in our own perception. We're not, we're not grounding ourselves in how we're seeing the truth, but rather 
because of that fog, that, that amorphous state, we're relying on the perceptions of others. It's grasping, aversion, and delusion. It's also taught that there's almost like a, a jewel hidden inside each of these states. When we can see them clearly, when we can be mindful, when we can be present, then it's almost like each of these states has a kind of energy in them that we can, we can pull out of what is normally wrapped very tightly with ignorance, with delusion, and with that sense of being compelled, that sense of tunnel vision. Rilke said that our deepest fears are like dragons guarding our deepest treasures. So there's a treasure inside each one of them. And so they say each of these states, through the practice of mindfulness, through our continued open-hearted acknowledgement of what is, our coming back into the present, our being with what is in a non-interfering way, we can transform each of these states. Grasping, they say, has a lot in common with faith itself. Faith in the Buddhist tradition um, is the offering of our hearts. Rather than being withdrawn, being cut off from life, we come close to the experiences of life. We're not governed by fear, but we can move forward. We can touch things deeply and allow them to touch us deeply. And so grasping, which also has that tendency of moving forward, wanting experience, wanting um, life, loving life, but, all, but has in addition that kind of control mechanism, that delusion, that folly that thinks we'll be able to keep things from changing, if we're mindful enough of the grasping, it can become a state of faith where we can loosen the grip of that effort to control and still have that moving forward, that wanting to be immersed in life, not being distant, to open to, to come close, to love. That's all characteristic of faith. And so if we have the habit of grasping, it can become the habit, so to speak, of faith of trust, of loving life. We just have to get loose from that tendency toward seizing, toward trying to be in control, and that's what mindfulness will do. And the aversive tendency becomes wisdom or insight. Because you go back to that person coming into the room saying everything that's wrong with everybody and everything, there's often a lot of intelligence in that. You know, here's, it's a person sometimes of very great courage who's willing to not stay on the surface of things and just be polite and, and ignore everything that you know, we would like to ignore, everything that hurts and everything that's difficult and everything that's challenging. And here's the person cutting right through all of that superficiality and, and having a willingness to look deeper and to have a more penetrating view and Um, to name that which might be off, which might be wrong. And so the problem with anger is not that energy. It's not that intelligence. It's the burning. It's the distortion. It's the tunnel vision. When we're lost in anger, as anger, we lose all sense of possibility. You know, when was the last time you were really angry 
and your mind happily thought, well, if it doesn't work out this way, maybe it'll work out that way, you know? That's not what happens. Everything closes down. It shuts down. We're lost. But if we're mindful of the state of anger, we can take that energy, which cuts through, which names what we see as true, which is courageous, which doesn't stay on the surface of things. And that's how it transmutes. That anger will transmute to wisdom, to intelligence. And even delusion has something going for it, which is the kind of balance or equanimity that's in there, where we're kind of even, we're okay with things. When we're lost in delusion, we're okay because we're not noticing. In fact, I'm often told that a deluded person is a very nice person to travel with. I once went through overland through China, uh, Tibet, Nepal with a friend of mine who was a self-proclaimed greedy type. And we would check into a hotel room and she would say to me, well, do you mind if I take that bed over there? And I'd say, no, sure. And maybe 10 minutes later, I'd say, why did you want that bed? And she'd say, well, the mosquito net doesn't have a hole in it and the mattress isn't sagging and it's right near the window so I can control the window and it's right near the light switch so I can control the light switch. I hadn't noticed anything. You know, but if we practice, just in the way that Upandita had me practice, strangely enough, <laughs> connecting, paying attention, being aware, opening to this moment and this moment and this moment, then it's like we are shining the light of awareness so that we're not disconnected, we're not in that bubble of, of confusion, and yet we can have the equanimity. It's like an open-heartedness. Do we really care? so much about that light switch? Maybe not. So if we practice mindfulness, which um, is sometimes called clear comprehension, sometimes it's, it's called attention, um, it's called wise attention. If we practice mindfulness, then out of the delusion, it's almost like the clouds of confusion that make up the delusion will go away. And we're no longer waiting for a better experience to happen. We're no longer cut off from what we're feeling. We're very aware of what's going on, and yet we can have that, that kind of peace, that kind of composure. So because of that, whether you because of that teaching, you know, whether you are greatly habituated to greed or anger or delusion, it doesn't matter. Because mindfulness is like the alchemical agent. No matter what we have going on, if we are paying attention, wise attention, if we're practicing mindfulness, then there's a a transforming process that can happen. And no matter what we have, going on in terms of our tendencies, right in this moment, we can experience great freedom. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.